the energy session on U.S.-Arab energy relations, uh, which given the situation today is more than a little bit complicated and unusual. Uh, first off, uh, my traveling buddy to Windsor Castle in March, uh, Herman Franson, head of the Energy Intelligence Group and former chief economist at the Ener International Energy Agency. I'm going to be brief with the intros. And then Ken Katzman, uh, one of the premier experts on sanctions in Iran uh, from the Library of Congress, and uh, Mr. Kent Logston, uh, U.S. Department of State Bureau of Energy Resources Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, and he was the Charge d'Affaires in Germany. Nice place to be. Somebody likes you. <laughs> anyway, I will take Chair's privilege and begin with my talk. I'm going to put my watch up here so I'm on time, which for me sometimes can be difficult because I like talking, and this is a fascinating issue. Okay, first of all, my opinions, or my opinions alone, do not represent those of the United States government, the Department of Defense, National Defense University, or any other organization I might be part of. You probably realize through my speech that they certainly do not represent some people in the government. It is not morning in America. It is not morning in America. It is not springtime in the Arab world. However, energy could be seen as an enabler to move things forward between our two parts of the world and also within each part of our world. Energy development can add to human development in education, health, communications, transportation, water systems, security, and more. Energy is a source of betterment for people all over the world. Historically, it has added much to the people of the United States and the Arab world. For instance, consider the United States in 1860, before electricity was set up in even a small grid, then 1920, the 1950 and now. Energy has moved this country forward. Now consider Saudi Arabia in 1920, before the discovery of oil. The king of Saudi Arabia's treasury could have been fit into a camel bag, and his palace was a mud hut. Well, a rather large mud hut. Now consider the UAE of the 1950s compared to now. Consider Egypt in 1900 compared to now and how energy development has moved them forward. Now consider Syria. Now consider Yemen. Now consider Libya. So energy is not a panacea. These are essentially non-countries with no energy systems that are functioning properly for their people. Energy needs to be used equally and equitably. It also needs to be protected, and I'll be focusing on infrastructure. 
It needs to be developed in a way that focuses on the human development and human security of the people of these countries, not just for those at the top of the hill, which has often been the case, particularly with regard to energy revenues, which has been a cause for some instability. Energy systems is systems within systems, connected with other systems, nested in other systems, it is a par far more complex set of infrastructure that often is greatly centralized, causing insecurity. Many know about the energy, water, food, land nexus, but there's much more, such as the energy, finance, communication, transport, government, national security nexus. I teach about uh, energy and bring my students traveling around the world at National Defense University and teach also at Georgetown. And what I've seen over the last few years in the energy systems of the Middle East is a mixed bag to say the least. Now think of militaries and first responders, hospitals and clinics without electricity. Now you're thinking Yemen, Syria, and parts of Libya. Without energy, where are a people to be? And where are they going? Energy security is a requirement for the economic security and even for the national security to be sustainable over the long run. And energy security is not just for oil, as so many of our partially educated politicians take us to task on. It's all about importing oil from the Saudis. And they keep on forgetting what people like me have been telling them for years. Our biggest source of oil is the Canadians, aside from us. The big bad Canadians. What a threat. And by the way, our deal with Saudi and oil has to do with the Moftiva refinery in Texas that I take to my students regularly. Energy security includes oil, gas, electricity from many different fuels, water power, wind, nuclear, and so forth. And with regard to nuclear, I didn't put in my speech, but there are five GOP senators trying to stop the U.S.-Saudi nuclear deal, if you haven't read that yet. My sense is this is probably floating above water barely from the beginning. Nuclear energy has certain insecurities attached to it and infrastructure attached to it that makes many people nervous. My guess is either the Koreans or the Chinese are going to get this one. So once again, the United States will hand big energy projects to the Chinese. The Chinese are toasting us in infrastructure worldwide. This is a great powers competition in energy as well, not just in politics and diplomacy. And the Chinese are pouring money and they don't have the same restrictions our people have. And they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, my friends from the Arab world. They will want something in return. As some of the people I spoke with yesterday, senior generals from various parts of the world were telling me, we're worried about the Chinese investment in our countries. But every country needs solid, secure, viable, and protected infrastructure in order for the country to work. 
The Arab world in the United States may be distant geographically, but with regard to these sorts of threats, we are very close. Think about the threats, physical threats of terrorism to our energy infrastructure. The cyber threats to our energy infrastructure are severe. The most cyber attacked industry in our country, the United States, is energy by far. And the energy companies are not keeping up with this. Saudi Aramco was cyber attacked. The Iranians were cyber attacked. But right now, I'm not going to shed a lot of tears on that one because there were other reasons behind that. Cyber has no boundaries. So this is one thing that we can work together on. Most people, when they learn about the world, the Arab world, the American world, they see a map with borders. This is all gone. This is all gone. What's happening now is someone in a basement in Tehran or Pyongyang could attack anywhere in the world and be completely anonymous. And we can't go after them, the United States, at various levels because of our legal restrictions. And our energy system has sleeper viruses in it, placed by the Chinese and the Russians. And those of you from the Arab world, I would do a quick checking around to find out whether that's happened to you. The statement in the cyber energy field is, if you think you haven't been hacked, you haven't looked. Then there are the physical threats from terrorists, insider threats, politically driven threats, ideological threats, and military threats. And then there are natural threats, like earthquakes. Not a good place to put a nuclear power plant right near a fault line, as Bushir is placed. If any in the Arab world are thinking about nuclear plants, make sure it's in a seismically very, very quiet, sleepy area. Otherwise, you're going to be facing a Fukushima issue. There are diplomatic threats because of ignorance. The biggest threat both of our parts of the world face with regard to energy and just about everything else is massive ignorance, massive lack of critical thinking, and fake news. I usually don't quote Donald Trump, but when he said fake news, I was fascinated by that. I met with those officers yesterday from various parts of the world, different continents, different countries, different cultures, and every single one of them said fake news. So tell me, is this spreading? And also, there are people who want to score points for themselves politically because of upcoming elections not just here, but elsewhere. And then there are disruptive technological threats that could get rid of life-affirming and incomes for many people. Oil will be with us for some time. But look out, folks, if the oil price goes way up. The electric car is coming around the bend very rapidly, very rapidly. And that could change the entire situation. But then again, Saudi Arabia could be a major solar power exporter as well. There are financial and economic threats, which many people in the region are facing right now. 
Egypt, with all of its public statements about how much stronger its economy is getting, there are people in that country that are living lives so harsh, I just shake my head every time I visit. GDP is a bad measure of doing well. What you need to do is go down deep and dig into the micro data. And when you dig into the micro data in the Arab world, what you find is a lot of people under stress. There are geographic choke points, Hormuz, the Suez, Bosphorus, and so forth. Uh, then there's the tyranny of geography. The oil is one place, and it's needed somewhere else. And then there's the tyranny of nature and politics. And then there's the tyranny of too few facilities. This is an interesting one. Too few facilities in small locations. If anyone wants to have a building of high blood pressure, take a boat tour around Houston Ship Channel. That's where 26% of our gasoline and diesel is made and 60% of our jet fuel, and it's all in a tiny location. Now visit Ras Tanura in Saudi Arabia, or Ras Lafan in Qatar, or the port of Tokyo. Everything's in a small place. The tyranny of small geography. Even in the Rubel Khali, that tyranny exists. And also the tyranny of open information. When that natural gas facility was attacked in Algeria, I put up Google Earth on the screen in my classroom. And I focused in on that natural gas facility. And I showed my students an open gate. If I can do that, anyone can do that. And the military people in this room know full well that this is exactly what the bad guys are doing. I can go and see a nuclear power plant anywhere in the world through certain software while sitting having a coffee in a coffee shop on my smartphone. Content. Kahwa. Angry young men. OK, let's see where that nuclear power plant is. All it takes is an event, and that event ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you right now, is inevitable. Because we are complacent. In order to help solve this, John Duke helped, asked me to give some solutions. There are so many of them I could speak about this for the next three hours. Maybe some of you would want to listen to that. Uh, maybe Herman would. But we'll have a cup of coffee and talk about it that way. But certainly, we have to coordinate things better. We have to have more coalitions of infrastructure protection and information protection. Information is so freewheeling in the world right now. And why is this important for energy? Because energy is informationally intensive. And energy systems are run on SCADA, supervisory control and data acquisition systems, which are hackable. We have to understand the threats and the differences of the threats across our nations. We have to lock down some public data. I know some of you think we should all have all data possible. Uh, I, my Georgetown colleagues would say yes. My NDU colleagues would say, you know, I think you got something there, Sullivan. Right after 9-11, I went to set up a class on the pipeline systems of the United States. And I went to the EIA website, which is where you find most of the stuff, and the maps were gone. So I spent the class miming the maps on a blackboard. 
and they're back up again. If you go to the EIA website, Google Energy Maps, and you will find every single facility in the United States. And I could do the same thing for just about every other country in the world. This is not good considering the fractious politics within our country and also across countries. Okay, I think I've met my time limit. I have a whole lot more to talk about. Uh, it's an interesting subject. My teaching on this has changed to the Great Powers Competition, which is in power right now. This is taking over everything, but terrorism still exists. I tell my colleagues in the military, terrorism still exists, but anyone in the military knows when the big guys give you orders, you just go like this and you move forward. Yes, it's a great powers competition. Everyone talk about China. Everyone talk about Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. Let's not fall asleep on what else is going on around here. Thank you very much. And Herman? Thank you very much, Paul. I think I would like to have my slides on now. How do we do that? Ah, they are. It's done. Uh, these were some rather pessimistic observations. Uh, I will start with somewhat, to start out with somewhat more optimistic, and maybe I'll get down to where you are when I, when I finish. It's a matter of time. <laughs> Since the oil embargo of 1973, when I started working, around that time, 34 actually, and 79, the two oil embargo, the two major uh, escalations of oil prices, 73 and 79, as a result of geopolitical events, oil prices increased by a factor 10. So the net result was two massive recessions after the first oil shock and after the second oil shock. So ever since President Nixon, all the way through to um, Obama, the every single president was striving for to achieve energy independence. Now, in reality, we were always exporting coal. We didn't need to import much gas. We did some by pipe from Canada. But the real emphasis was always on oil, independence of foreign oil, and particularly oil from the Persian Gulf. Even though in most instances we did not import more than 20% of our total imports from that part of the world, but we always focused on them as the insecure sources of supply. The reality, of course, the economic issues more, even more than the security issues, because you can always get oil. A trader will always get you a barrel of oil if you want it, as long as you're willing to pay the price, the market price for it. And that happened in the 1970s when the total system collapsed. There was enough oil. There was plenty of oil after 73, 74. There was plenty of oil, even though Iran's production collapsed in 79. But what happened is that the system basically collapsed from an orderly system to a system in transition. Everybody panicked, and the price took, uh, went up very, very high levels. So now we are finally in a situation where we have done quite well. Let me see now. This. The, uh, I should be showing up. There we are. Okay. Now, what you see here is what happened 
in the past decade. And it is absolutely phenomenal what our industry has achieved. Over a period of a decade, totally unforeseen, nobody had predicted this, our crude oil production has increased almost 5 million barrels a day. And end of this year will be close to six even. Our production of natural gas liquids, which is essential for petrochemicals, but also for other purposes, increased dramatically, as you see, from just around one and a half to four and a half. And our dry natural gas production increased by about 50%. There is no such success story like this since the success stories of the Middle East in the 60s and 70s. This is absolutely phenomenal. Because what has our industry achieved at a time when oil consumption ranged between 19 and 21 barrels a day over that decade, so up and down, double down a little bit, but this massive increase of almost 8 million barrels a day of growth in, we call it liquids, or crude oil and NGLs, is almost equal to the total production, not incremental production, of Latin America or of Asia or of Africa. So the net result of this has happened over that period. Our imports declined from a peak of about 12.5 million barrels a day in 2005 to about 3.7 in 2017. And the end of 2018, we should be just above 2.5 million barrels a day. What a dramatic shift. And this is largely due to the industry. Now, when you compare that and you add up the crude oil, the NGLs, and we also have another million barrels a day of biofuels, we, our total production of liquids is 16.5 million barrels a day. Now, compare that with Saudi production today, it's about 10.7 million barrels a day, moving towards 11. And Russia, 10.4 to 10.5 million barrels a day. So, in terms of production, we are absolutely dominant. Whether this will continue and for how long is difficult to say. Most of the industry projections are at least for the time being, the next few years, this will continue even though there are a lot of headwinds. The headwinds are the massive debt of that tight oil industry in excess of $200 billion. And much of that industry hasn't been profitable. They're working hard to make it profitable, but it has not happened yet. Other headwinds are a lot of local and state op uh, opposition to uh, fracking. Uh, Colorado may have an initiative in the elections coming up uh, a few days from now. Uh, there are other headwinds, uh, but those are kind of the major, major headwinds that we're dealing with. But so far, it has been of great interest to our economy because we now produce some of the cheapest natural gas in the entire world. What does that do? Great benefit to the industry. Whoever uses natural gas as a boiler fuel or for other purposes has had the great advantage of low-cost gas, which Europeans and Japanese and South Koreans do not have. We also, on the balance of trade, when you look at the balance of trade, which has come up a lot in the past two years, the balance of trade on energy is almost gone. In other words, we're almost down to zero. Unfortunately, the balance of trade and everything else has jumped up dramatically. So energy, which was supposed to what was the highest deficit that we had at the time of the Nixon administration, is now the lowest. Major, major achievement. 
So, but how, what has it done to our friends in the Middle East? Well, to our friends in the Middle East, it has not been beneficial. Because obviously, if you take 8 million barrels a day lower imports than we had before, if we still had to import that additional oil, A, prices would be a lot higher than they are today. So it is not recognized usually by the consumers of the world, but what has it been achieved by our industry has been of major benefit to the entire world of consumers. The Chinese, the Europeans, the Japanese all benefited from what was achieved here by the United States in that decade. But I do agree, I do not agree with His Excellency Ali Naimi when he welcomed this production. Because if I had been sitting in his chair, I said, oh my God, look what these guys are doing. They are now our main competitors. They are taking 8 million barrels a day out of us being OPEC market share. And this year, again, the call on OPEC, the demand for OPEC oil, is lower than 2017. Next year, OPEC's own production show a further decline in the demand for OPEC oil by 900,000 barrels a day. Well, whether these numbers are going to work out or not, but what it shows, we are a big competitor. And between us and Canada, somewhere around 80% of world's consumption is covered. So there is not much room for anybody else. So this has been a phenomenal change. And obviously, it will change whether you know, one likes it or not, the relationship we have with producer states. We all, it has made us basically, compared to any of our allies, in a far better position than they are in. Now, our relationship with the Middle East are obviously based on a lot of other phenomena other than energy. Uh, we are more transactional now than we were before, so we want to get paid for our services. We want to get paid for our defense. But it has actually been done in the past. The Gulf War was fully paid for by our allies. We, did, actually our, we had no net cost of the Gulf War in terms of money. Uh, the other thing is uh, that we actually, somewhere around between a third and half in terms of value of our military exports, are bought by these people in the Middle East. Do they need all that? Well, that's a question you may ask yourself. But they are making a major contribution uh, to us in the form of importing massive volumes of uh, very high and advanced weapons. So we, our presence in the Middle East is not just for oil, as it was in the past, for the security of ourselves, our allies, and for the global economy, but it was also because we have other interests in the region as well. Um, let me now say, end this by saying that the Middle East still controls about half of the world's conventional oil reserves and 43% of the natural gas reserve, much of it in Iran and in Qatar. It produces one-third of global oil production and controls practically all of the spare capacity. Spare capacity makes you an important player, because we don't have that. We are not a price maker. We are a price taker. Saudi and, its, uh, and, and OPEC are price makers. They can cut production a little bit or raise production a little bit with the spare capacity they have. We cannot. So, uh, 
Europe, and even more Asia remain very dependent on the steady flow of oil and gas from the region, and the world economy remains dependent on a stable Middle East, which should be kept away from rising influence of U.S. competitors. Uh, let me end then by paraphrasing Sir Halford John McKinder by saying that whoever controls the oil reserves of the Middle East controls the global oil market. And whoever controls the global oil market is the dominant player in the global economy. Loss of this leadership would significantly weaken U.S. leadership and strengthen our competitors and adversaries. Are there any recommendations that you know, we were asked to say? Well, first of all, for our industry, keep on doing what you're doing. You're just doing fine. Uh, I agree with most of the conclusions that Paul had, so I will add all your recommendations to my recommendations. Uh, and we definitely, uh, I would believe that our government should remain very strongly involved in the region, because the region is a key area, as I just quoted, or from Mackinder. And finally, for the Gulf countries, I think the, the, the uh, proposals that are now pending for the uh, Vision 2030 and similar ones elsewhere, if anything, should be speeded up. Because the demand for jobs in the coming decade in the region are just astronomical and very important that full attention is paid to them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank John Duke Anthony and the National Council for inviting me to speak again at the annual conference. I'd also like to thank them for scheduling my panel in the morning, since it's going to take me five hours to put my Halloween costume on later. Uh, I am in a CRS capacity today. Sometimes when I appear, I'm not. Today, I am. I caveat my remarks by saying I am not an energy expert. I'm not an expert on the global oil market. I hope I am. I think I am an expert on Iran, and I'm going to address Iran today in an energy context. Not the global oil market necessarily, but I will address Iran, and particularly Iran sanctions which I do think I do have some expertise to offer today. The Trump administration's strategy on Iran is to, de to deny the Iranian government as much revenue as possible to deny it, with the intent to limit Iran's capability to develop strategic weapons or other programs, to intervene in the region, or to even satisfy the aspirations of its, of its own population. The least ambitious goal of the strategy is to cause Iran to renegotiate the nuclear deal to one that is more favorable to the United States. The maximum, the most ambitious, hoped for outcome of the strategy is to lead to a political collapse that ousts the Islamic regime in Tehran entirely. The key to the strategy in the administration view is to reduce Iran's oil exports to the maximum extent possible. The administration has stated that it, would ins that it will insist that Iran's major oil customers, its, all its oil customers, fully comply with reimposed sanctions, which go back into effect on midnight on uh, Sunday night, so Monday, 
Monday at midnight, Monday night at midnight, these sanctions, the energy sanctions go back into full effect. The administration has stated that Iran's oil customers must fully comply by cutting oil purchases from Iran to as close to zero as possible if they want to retain an, ex an exception under the sanctions law, which is the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which allows for an exception uh, if a country, it, it allows for a sanctions exception if the country significantly reduces their purchases of Iranian oil every six months, and there needs to be a significant reduction each six-month increment as measured. Uh, the agreed definition of significant reduction is 18%. So each customer must reduce their purchases of Iranian oil 18% each sequential six months to retain this exception. More recently, after appeals from countries such as South Korea, which buys a great deal of Iranian condensate, not necessarily crude oil, but condensate in particular, and India, which has spent heavily to adapt its refineries to alternatives. The administration has modified its stance a little bit. U.S. officials now say they will evaluate requests for this exception on a case-by-case -case basis, and they say we will work with our partners with the goal, still the goal, of driving Iran's oil exports as close to zero as possible. Maybe my talk today is useful because press analysis has been all over the map. Some articles say the administration is working, that it is collapsing Iran's oil exports. Other articles say the effect has been quite modest. I would assert that the results so far, based on the figures I have today, is that the results are modest as of now, based on figures of oil exports from the end of September. Now, tonight, it's October 31st. I do not have October's figures. I will have those tomorrow, but unfortunately, the conference is today. The panel is today. I only have September 30th figures. Based on those figures, uh, so the figures are prior to the effective date of the reimposed sanctions, which is next Monday, October, uh, November 5. But uh, the... The September figures, the end of September figures, already factor in purchase cuts. It's not like everybody's going to make their moves on Monday. <laughs> They've already started to make their moves in terms of reducing uh, oil imports from Iran. The figures I have as of end of September show that Iran's crude oil exports fell from about 2.45 million barrels a day when Mr. Trump announced the exit from the nuclear deal to about 1.6 million barrels per day at the end of September. That is about a 34, about a one-third decrease, one-third, uh, 34% or so. It is a substantial decrease, but Iran's exports as of the end of September were, are not even yet even close to the administration's target, which, is to, which was in the interim to get Iran down below 1 million barrels a day of exports. So as of the end of September, Iran was lower, but not even near what the administration had wanted. The 1.6 million barrel a day figure might not hold. We don't know. It's a level, but it is, if it does hold, it's a level Iran's economy can live with. 
That's a level that Iran's economy would be close to the flat line and not go into a very significant recession. Iran's oil exports have held up probably better than some expected, largely on the backs of China and India. As of the end of September, each one was each importing about 500,000 barrels a day of Iranian oil. So together, as of the end of September, they imported about 1 million barrels a day. To be fair, there are press reports out in recent days that refiners in both China and India, partly on instructions from their government, will cut significantly just as US sanctions kick back uh, in on Monday. However, it's possible they might decrease just ahead of the sanctions reimposed and then go back up after the deadline passes. We, we just don't know. But suffice it to say, the governments of both China and India have said that the US pullout from the Iran nuclear deal and reimposition of sanctions is a step they oppose, and that Iran is not under UN sanctions, and really there's no justification to abide by reimposed US sanctions. Both governments, India, China, have said words to that effect, as have the Europeans, although the Europeans have not said they would necessarily flout, flout the, the, these sanctions, but they have said they oppose the move. On the other side of the ledger, Iran has completely lost South Korea as an oil customer. As of the end of September, South Korea was at zero, zero oil imports from Iran. And it has almost totally lost Japan, which as of the end of September was down to a very, very tiny import volume of 22,000 barrels a day of Iranian oil, nearly zero. Taiwan, also a very small bar, it is now at zero. Somewhere in the middle are the European Union and Turkey. As of the end of September, European buyers were still collectively taking, and there's mainly Italy, Greece, and uh, Spain still taking about 300,000 barrels a day of Iranian oil, about half of what they were importing when Mr. Trump announced uh, the pullout from the Iran nuclear deal in May. However, given the exposure of US companies to the US, of EU companies to the US market, uh, this does signal that the fact that they are still importing 300,000 barrels a day does signal some degree of defiance of US policy or at least perhaps anticipation however, that uh, the administration will not take the confrontational step of actually imposing sanctions on any European companies. And the administration has basically continued the, the uh, approach of the previous administration, which is it's better to threaten to reimpose sanctions than, than to actually impose them. The, the, the leverage is to threaten to impose them without actually imposing them. Turkey is about one-third less importing than it was when the US pulled out. It was importing in May about 200,000 barrels a day of Iranian oil. It is now at about 133,000, so about a one-third uh, cut in uh, oil purchases from Iran. Turkey, however, remains dependent on Iranian oil and is, is and also has said the U.S. pullout from the nuclear deal was not justified, so Turkey might retain its imports at roughly this level. My bottom line conclusion is that the administration's strategy is going to hinge on ultimately on what China and India do. 
Together, these two buy 60% of Iran's oil exports. If those two countries remain relatively defiant of the US reimposition of sanctions, Iran will likely export enough oil to keep its economy afloat. If China and India start complying with US sanctions and cut their imports of Iranian oil dramatically, then I would predict the administration might achieve its goal of imposing very severe damage on the Iranian economy. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm going to broaden the topic again a, a little bit. Um, thank you to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for this important gathering. It's good to be here from the State Department. And I'm really pleased to be able to talk a little bit about the outlook for energy relations between the United States and our Arab partners. Today, more than ever, energy plays a significant, far-reaching role in global economic security. Energy has ripple effects on countries' internal affairs and economies, on the respective export and import policies, and of course on trade relations with neighboring countries and far-off partners alike. I want to start actually by talking about the United States and where we are in the global energy ecosystem. Ten years ago, as one of my colleagues has mentioned, the U.S. faced a potential shortage, many things, but particularly natural gas. We were building LNG import terminals, and we were gearing up to receive gas from other countries and other sources. But thanks to innovation, there's been an energy awakening. America has solidified its role at the center of the global energy system, and it has emerged as an energy exporting superpower, especially in the natural gas sector. From energy scarcity to energy abundance, this amazing turnaround means a new day for the global energy economy. This boom has improved economic fortunes for countless Americans. The upstream oil and gas industry alone has created hundreds of thousands of jobs, and brought previously unknown prosperity to communities in North Dakota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, really all across the United States. The wealth and opportunity that this awakening has brought to the U.S. has benefited us overseas as well. The transformation of the U.S. energy sector is a model for economic diplomacy, and it shows how other nations can generate greater prosperity, greater energy security, and by extension, greater national security. An ample supply of affordable, market-driven energy is essential to geopolitical stability. Across the world, political actors have leveraged energy scarcity for their own benefits. They've used energy as a political weapon, hindering global economic growth and sparking regional instability. The U.S. does not use energy as a coercive tool. We remain a reliable energy partner, and we're not going to, quote, shut off the gas when others need it. Our goal is to keep the markets open, transparent, and free of manipulation and political coercion. We're obviously equally committed to preventing malign actors, whether transnational terrorist organizations like ISIS or state sponsors of terrorism, such as Iran, from using oil revenues to finance violent, destructive, and destabilizing activities. As the President said last summer, he's firmly committed to open, fair, and competitive markets for global energy trade. And the U.S. believes that these open and truly global gas markets will drive economic growth across the world and provide energy and economic security for our allies and for our partners. The strength of the U.S. model is that we don't direct energy resources or investments for political purposes. We create the conditions to let the market work. And when the market works, then we believe we all win. 
The U.S. wants greater access to energy markets, fewer barriers to energy trade and development, and of course, stronger energy security, not just for ourselves, but for our allies and our partners all around the world. At home, the Presidential Executive Order on Promoting Energy Independence and Economic Growth, it opened and enhanced the market. Now it encourages domestic production, promotes exports, and streamlines regulatory processes across the entire energy sector. Here in the United States, we stay true to an all-of-the-above approach to our own energy security. That includes ensuring access to affordable, reliable energy, including cleaner use of fossil fuels, unleashing our abundant energy resources, coal, natural gas, petroleum, renewables, improved energy efficiency and nuclear power, stimulates the economy, and builds a foundation for future growth. In the Middle East, the U.S. is committed to helping Arab countries grow their economies to meet the needs of their growing populations and the drive toward higher living standards. Middle Eastern countries, of course, compete in the same global market, and that requires undertaking market-driven reforms, eliminating obstacles to upstream hydrocarbon development, and removing bottlenecks that limit trade in electricity, oil, gas, and, of course, other resources. In 2019, the U.S. will provide more than $2.8 billion in foreign assistance to Arab countries. And these, this assistance is really an investment in the well-being of both the Middle Eastern and American people, because helping partners ultimately leads to enhanced prosperity for all of us. In my bureau, the Bureau of Energy Resources at the Department of State, we have technical assistance programs that specifically try to help partners create legal and regulatory frameworks. These are helpful, we hope, to facilitate investment in energy infrastructure and liberalizing energy markets. Specifically, my Bureau's programs are helping governments build the good governance and technical capacity they need to manage oil, gas, and mineral resources. We also engage in numerous technical bilateral exchanges with many of our partners. In addition to promoting market-based fossil fuel sectors in countries abroad, we also provide technical assistance in the renewable energy and energy efficiency sectors in order to increase, increase access to affordable and reliable energy. In short, my Bureau is trying to create solvent, reliable, and sustainable power sectors with trading partners and allies. And we believe the liberalized markets and open competition are crucial for countries to develop energy resources that will maximize their long-term value for their people. In the Middle East and North Africa, U.S. companies support sustainable avenues for economic growth. U.S. companies are offering skills training and local manufacturing commitments. An excellent example of this, the partnership between General Electric and Algeria. Building on a 2013 deal to provide Algeria with gas turbines and to increase power generation capacity by 70%, GE signed a services deal this year that's going to generate hundreds of long-term skilled jobs in Algeria. Overseas, in addition to promoting open markets, a key priority for the U.S. government, of course, energy security. The U.S. has long supported the energy security of our allies and our partners, and we see four key aspects to energy security. Diversification of energy supplies by country of origin, path of delivery, and fuel types, including renewables, market liberalization and energy policy, cyber and physical security of critical energy infrastructure, and countering malign actors. Europe offers a good case in the importance of supply diversification. Russia, using its position as Europe's primary, primary uh, supplier of natural gas, they're able to exert influence on vulnerable countries, including by cutting off gas supplies. Investments in new energy infrastructure has enhanced Europe's energy markets, but there's a lot of work still left to be done. 
adequate diversification could help take some of the geopolitics out of Europe's energy markets and help ensure adequate energy supplies for all of Europe's consumers. Energy diversification also supports sustainable growth. Access to global markets is essential to the energy security of Middle Eastern countries that are blessed with natural resources. Global markets and diversification are key to broadening those markets to include regional neighbors in Europe, Asia, and beyond. Diversification also allows countries to attract investment from as broad a market as possible. Foreign investment in countries with developed hydrocarbons, such as Iraq, the United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait, they can help maintain and enhance production levels. Middle Eastern producers have faced production challenges in recent years, like Libya and Egypt. They can use transparent resource management to attract more foreign investment. So I wanted to wrap up by mentioning one new initiative at the State Department. The President just announced an initiative called the Middle East Strategic Alliance, or we call it MESA, to strengthen the relationship between the U.S. and our Arab partners. MESA is going to help our partners achieve and maintain stability, security, and economic prosperity. The initiative focuses on three areas, political cooperation, security cooperation, and economic cooperation. And of course, energy plays a critical role. National security is obviously built upon physical, political security. Political security is built upon economic security, and economic security, we think, is built upon energy security. The Bureau of Energy Resources at the State Department, in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Energy, is leading this effort to make energy cooperation the bedrock of cooperation throughout the region as part of this MESA initiative. Our discussions so far with our partners have focused on five areas, regional energy infrastructure integration, energy sector investment structural reform, critical energy infrastructure protection and resilience, diversification of supply, and sustainable resource development and use. This initiative is attempting to increase jobs, lower the cost of energy production, and of course create the foundation for greater cooperation throughout the region. In conclusion, the U.S. government is going to try our best to continue to support free, fair, and transparent energy markets and support, to support those countries that seek the same. We especially look forward to working with our Arab partners, many representatives here in this room, both bilaterally and through the MESA initiative to advance prosperity and to strengthen energy security for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Uh, we have some questions from the audience. I'll take uh, the first two or three because they land on things that I know something about. Uh, the first question is a very difficult one, fraught politically, even emotionally. How best to manage the nuclear component of U.S.-Arab relations? Uh, most of you probably don't know that one of my first jobs after my PhD was to work in a nuclear laboratory. So I know a little bit about the complexity of nuclear production and how it connects in with nuclear weapons. Many people don't know that there's a huge leap between nuclear production and the production of nuclear weapons, including geotelemetry and so forth and so forth. But I would say the best way to manage this is carefully and smartly, like my former student and old friend Yusuf Al-Taiba did for the UAE, uh, setting up a one-two-three agreement with the United States. And that was a complicated moment for him and for us. But the politics of U.S.-Saudi relations now are very complicated because of recent events, which I will not get into, that everyone in this room knows about, and also long-term prejudices 
that still are inherent. Carefully and quietly, intellectually and so forth. Keep the press out of this until the decisions are made. And I know that's difficult in this situation that we live in with information moving at a million miles an hour. But as I said in my speech, I read this morning there are five GOP senators who said they will try to block the US Saudi Arabia nuclear initiative. And that will build and that will grow. One way to figure out US uh, viewpoints on this is to read the big newspapers and look at the articles, not necessarily on page one, but page five through page 20, that hammer away at certain countries and certain people in certain countries to change the viewpoints. <coughs> and also, don't forget the Daily Caller and uh, the internet, which creates anything it wants to. This is going to be a difficult road for US-Saudi nuclear relations in any nuclear relations. For Egypt, the Russians have already agreed to pay for it. Don't go for it. Because they will not build the right technology. And they, what the Chinese and the Russians are doing right now is they're blocking other investments for others. There's a big nuclear chess game going on right now. The Russians and the Chinese go in and say, we're going to invest in this nuclear system. The Americans say, OK, it's already blocked. I don't want to touch that. And then they don't even go in and do it. This has happened many times before. And also, there's a security issue uh, in your country, sir, on, with regard to this. And we can talk about that offline without getting into the details. I know your country well. I know nuclear stuff well. We can talk about this. All right, next question. Uh, would you address how the US, and I would add Arab world, is or is not prepared for an EMP attack? For those of you who don't know what an EMP is, it's an electromagnetic pulse. If someone sent a nuclear weapon overhead and blew it up at a certain level in the atmosphere, and a lot of people are joking this is not going to happen. If I were a 15-year-old with a good brain and new electronics, I could probably set up an EMP attack across the street from you and knock out a transformer station for your entire county easily. What is the US doing? The military is hardening things. The private sector is doing absolutely nothing, as far as I know. If there were an EMP attack on New York City, the electricity network would not only go out, it would be out until it could be entirely repaired because everything is fried when one of these things goes off. These are directed energy weapons, and this is something of the future. Uh, then there was another question in that. Why don't we get to the others and give other people a chance to uh, answer these questions. What efforts have Middle Eastern states made for renewable energy? Anyone? No? Okay, I'll take that one too. <laughs> one thing that really surprised me and my students when we went to the UAE not long ago was to visit Mazdar and other places working on renewable energy. And the conclusion of many of my students was, Doc, they're ahead of us. What's going on here? We were astonished. The UAE and, of course, their neighbor, which they don't really get along with very well with, Qatar is working on this. The Saudis are working on solar power on and off sometimes. The Egyptians are building wind vanes and solar panels and other solar facilities, including concentrated solar power. The Moroccans have one of the biggest solar facilities in the world called Anur, 
which I like because that's my son's name, and it means light. A lot is happening in renewable energy because even Saudi Arabia with its massive oil reserves knows this is the future. This is the future for many reasons. Saudi Arabia, if we have uh, superconducting batteries, could be a major exporter of electricity inside of these superconducting batteries. Forget oil. This would be the way to go. And also the climate effects, and many of the people I've met in the region, including the Egyptian environment minister and others a few years ago, they are apoplectic about climate change and how this could affect their region. The Americans, for some reason, don't even debate this at Shinnew anymore. They, well, actually, they debate it too much, and a lot of people deny that it even exists. And I'll end my comment on this. I took a keelboat course with a West Point graduate of 1967. He was in his 80s, and he moved around the boat better than my son and me. And as the wind went down, he turned to me and he said, you know, Paul, what do you think about this climate change stuff? I said, sir, I'm convinced it's happening. I'm convinced it's our fault. And I started looking at this at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in 1985. Wasn't convinced until four years ago. Sometimes I'm slow. <coughs> but he turned to me, and this is something unexpected from a seemingly very right-wing West Point graduate. Paul, you know, I believe it too because I can't get my sailboat under this certain bridge that I used to many years ago. And that nailed it for him. Of course, my son thoroughly believes in it. He went into a lecture, a monologue for the next half an hour, which was wonderful, because he's brilliant. Little plug there for my son. Anyway, other questions. On Iran, I guess somebody here yeah, is going to, do you have a question there? Yeah. Can I speak from here? OK. Yeah, I just want, I mean, on Mazdar City, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that Mazdar City means they're technologically ahead of the United States. I mean, it might mean that they have money to put into these demonstration projects, but I wouldn't conclude from Mazdar City that they are ahead of the United States technologically. Anyway, uh, the question was, how does Iran's involvement as a player in global energy markets impact U.S.-Arab relations? Well, the, uh, as I said in my, my talk, uh, the administration strategy is to basically erase Iran from the global energy market. The administration strategy is to basically eliminate Iran as a global energy exporter. Now, as I also said in my talk, it has not gotten to that point and probably will not get to that point, but that is what the current administration would like to see. In, in that sense, U.S.-Arab relations are affected because the administration has sought to plan for the possibility that its strategy might succeed. Now, as I said, Iran ha was exporting almost 2.5 million barrels a day of crude oil when Mr. Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and reimposed U.S. sanctions. The, so that if the, admi the administration was assuming if their strategy works, you are removing two and a half million barrels a day from the global supply. So the U.S. has engaged with Saudi Arabia, with other countries with spare capacity, UAE, others, to try to make sure that if indeed Iran's exports are reduced to that level, there will be enough supply 
put on the extra supply put on the market so that prices do not uh, escalate too much. So, so there has been some impact on U.S.-Arab relations. Aside from the strategic impact, which is that the U.S. particularly and the Gulf states, uh, the Gulf states particularly agree with uh, the administration's strategy of trying to uh, basically crush Iran's economy to the maximum extent possible. Uh, Ken, I have another one for you, which uh, I think all of us are thinking about this one to some extent or other. If sanctions against Iran could potentially bring about a collapse of the Islamic regime, who, if anyone, would be able to form a new government? The, uh, the thinking on that is really all over the board. I think my, my reading of the administration's strategy is uh, that if, if indeed the Islamic regime collapses, basically anything that would succeed it would be preferable to what is there now. Now, we can agree or disagree, but that is what the administration thinks. Uh, you know, the scenarios are endless. You, you could get uh, revolutionary guard commanders trying to come to power and reconstitute some sort of a, uh, you know, more right-wing, somewhat Islamist regime that keeps control. You could get student and intellectual activists who have been responsible for protests in the past coming back into the, the forefront. You could get exile group. Obviously, there's a fear among some that uh, some of the exile groups could, could profit and, and try to return and form some sort of regime. Uh, the Mujahideen Khalq is widely mentioned, although I don't think that they're in any sense popular enough to, to constitute a, a functioning government in a post-Islamic regime. But the, the essence of the question is, you know, my analysis is that the administration, as I said, the maximum goal of the policy, the, the, if the policy really succeeds as it's hoped, would, would be the, the collapse of the Islamic regime, yes. Well, that's dicey. Uh, Herman, I think this is probably one for you. How have fluctuations in oil prices over time impacted GCC domestic infrastructure and foreign investment initiatives? Could you repeat it? How have fluctuations in oil prices over time impacted GCC domestic infrastructure and foreign investment initiatives? I assume that's related to the oil. Yeah, energy aspect. probably, yes. And other, not just oil, yeah. Well, I think not all that much because there hasn't been much need for expansion in recent years. The, initially, before the uh, U.S. energy renaissance, I would call it, uh, started, the perception was that gradually but steadily the demand for OPEC and therefore uh, for Arab oil would increase. That hasn't happened. We can now look at the demand of OPEC oil going back 10, 20 years. It's kind of almost stuck at the same level, around 30 million barrels a day. I remember as late as 1989, at the end of an OPEC meeting, two ministers were accused of having overproduced. There was uh, the Emirates, Mana al Taiba, and uh, Kuwait, uh, that was Ali Khalifa. And I remember still what, what, what I remember is not what they said about the so-called cheating, but they said, don't worry about it. As from next year, 
going into the 90s, all of the oil outside of OPEC will begin to come down and the demand for OPEC oil will, will go up dramatically. Now we are in 2018. The demand for OPEC oil is still around 30 million barrels a day. Uh, Mohammed Barkindo told me that our latest projections for next year is down another 900,000 barrels a day. How that's divided up is another matter. But therefore, there was really no, no need to add much infrastructure over and above. The need is to maintain the current capacity, which is adequate for the time being. The real issue right now is gas. The gas is the real problem. Because for some reason, all the gas is located in the Middle East, in Iran, and in Qatar. For other countries do not have the massive accumulations of conventional gas, I think now what is an interesting development, what BP has done in uh, Oman, where they found deep gas. And deep gas that can be produced, according to my shell friends, at less than $5 per million cubic feet, which is a very good price compared to if you wanted to import LNG. So this may be a new development, and we may see that happening elsewhere. And I think this question might be for you, Mr. Logsdon. How might the U.S. work with Arab countries to develop renewable energy projects? And, and by the way, I didn't say that the UAE was ahead of us. I said my students said they, they were ahead of us. That's a different thing what you said. And this is State Department all over it. State Department all over it, thank you. Uh, obviously, renewables is part of any good uh, energy mix for diversification. We think it's very important. Uh, the driver, of course, in renewables is the private sector. What we try to do in particular at the Bureau of Energy Resources, as I mentioned, is work on the right kind of framework, the regulatory framework in countries to encourage uh, private investment and private investors to come in. So I think that will continue to be the focus from the State Department's angle on renewables. Okay, there's another question here which I found very curious. If the sanctions kick in for Iran, what will Oman do? Well, I, I don't, yeah, okay, yeah. So um, the sanctions could Potentially, some sanctions could affect Oman. There is there is a joint venture that uh, Oman and Iran have. Uh, Iran is a big investor in the Al Dukum uh, port project. Um, some of the sanctions do touch and specifically name port operations, port uh, shipping, shipping insurance as sanctionable activity. So that there could be an effect uh, certainly, but. Uh, you know, the, the sanctions do not do not uh, curtail or, or necessarily impinge on normal civilian trade. Uh, there's certain certain sectors of the Iranian economy that are, are singled out, obviously. But uh, <clears throat> and any any pipeline projects that Oman might be considering with Iran would would become sanctionable again. Any. Uh, any any pipeline projects involving Iran, not only with Oman, but anybody, would, would become potentially sanctionable again once the sanctions kick back in. But normal civilian trade between Oman and Iran or UAE and Iran or <clears throat> any of the neighboring countries and, and Iran would not uh, automatically be sanctionable. All right, and that's all the questions we got. Uh, so if uh, we could have a few wrap-up comments, starting with Ken and then going down the line. 
Well, I think it's been an interesting discussion. I mean, I think uh, I took away from uh, Herman Franson's presentation, you know, again, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the great strength of American technology. And I would note, uh, you know, obviously there, there was an OPEC strategy, I think, to, to maybe drive prices down uh, at some point to, to curtail the U.S. domestic energy shale production, fracking, et cetera. Uh, that failed miserably. Um, <clears throat> you know, again, I think the, the, those who had that strategy found out uh, that betting against American technology is a bad bet, uh, as everybody else who's bet against American technology has found that out too. So I don't think it was a surprise. Uh, so I was encouraged by Dr. Franson's uh, presentation. But the overall point on Iran, though, is uh, just to just to wrap up that. Uh, I think the administration's maximum goals for its uh, sanction strategy on Iran are probably not likely to succeed, although they are causing uh, Iran uh, some economic damage. Yes. Herman? <clears throat> well, I think we are, as a country, far better shape in terms of energy than we have been really since maybe around 1970. Uh, but that doesn't mean that strategically our interest in the Middle East should weaken as a result of it. Because the region still, as I have said, contains the bulk of the world's oil and gas. It will be producing long after we have produced the last profitable barrel of tight oil, and particularly Asia and to a lesser extent, Europe will continue to depend on it heavily. So for us to, uh, uh, if we were to be short-sighted and leave the region, withdraw our uh, fleet from, Bar from Bahrain, withdraw our, our troops in the region, I think we were to leave it open to uh, countries that might have less positive intentions than we have towards the Gulf states um, would not benefit us very much. So I hope that my, my list that I had is I hope that we will stay very much uh, attached to the region, while at the same time the, what the weakness in the market has taught us, that exercises like the 2030 exercise in Saudi and the 2020 exercise in Oman are vital. Diversification is a must to meet the growing demand for jobs in the region. Mr. Logson? I can't help but echo Dr. Franson's comments on how important the region is and will remain that way for the United States. Uh, obviously very excited about our MESA initiative and hope that is going to bear fruit as we continue to work with so many countries together. But energy continues to be, of course, in a bedrock of a lot of the cooperation and the future of the U.S. relationship with the region. So no change there. Thanks. Well, I suppose my... Uh wrap-up is related to what I was talking about. Beware of Russians and Chinese bearing gifts, because you will pay a heavy price. We may be heading toward more insularity, but U.S. corporations are not. 
There's a grand competition out there, and we're still very good at what we do. Thank you.